Hey all, this is Len. Before we get into this edition of Movie Night with Rob and Troy, I just wanted to say, since we're putting this out on the main feed as sort of a little preview of what you can get access to, if you subscribe to the Patreon at $5 or more, um, including lots and lots and lots of back episodes of this and future episodes of this, um, and it's going to be reaching a little bit of a wider audience than just our Patreon audience. Um, I wanted to mention that because it is the film Gettysburg that they are discussing, and they discuss a lot of aspects of the film, including ones that are uh, closely tied to racism and slavery. Um, at one point, I believe a character is quoted who, you know, in the film uses some racially charged language. Uh, so just a little bit of a content warning at the beginning here uh, in case any of that would cause you to think, oh, maybe I, I don't want to watch this or don't want to listen to this episode or maybe you don't want to listen to it right at this moment. Uh, and uh, that's all. Anyway, on with the show. Good evening and welcome back to 3MA's April Movie Night. I'm your host, Rob Zachney, joined by Troy Goodfellow. Uh, Troy, I somehow convinced the Waypoint gang that it was time to play Sid Meier's Gettysburg. Uh, for our Waypoint 101 series, but it turns out that all I did was infect myself with Civil War fever. Now, not an actual <laughs> Civil War fever. I'm not like dying of diphtheria or something, or like uh, you know catching catching some sort of wasting disease uh, in in the Chesapeake. Uh, but I, I am suddenly reading more Civil War history again, and I felt like the time has never been better to tackle a movie that you and I inevitably knew we would have to. Uh, on the series, 1993's uh, reenactor festival, Gettysburg, uh, starring Martin Sheen, uh, Jeff Daniels, and Tom Berenger. Uh, so we're talking about this movie in isolation up to an extent. I know the first question people listening to this are going to have is probably, y'all going to do gods and generals? Troy, what's our... <laughs> When when we take Gettysburg, which is the middle part of what was intent, what was briefly flirted with uh, as a possible cinematic trilogy of the Civil War, uh, later Gods and Generals happens. Do we regard that as a canonical prequel to Gettysburg? I mean, I guess. I mean, it kind of, I mean, it has many of the same uh, focus on characters and the same actors. It is uh, based on uh, a novel by the same writer, uh, Jeffrey. Uh, his Sh son. His son, sorry, right. And the, the Sarah, but the different, different, the two Sharas. The other one Shara, wrote, yeah. Right. Jeff Shara wrote Gods and Generals, which became the film Gods and Generals. His father wrote uh, Killer Angels. A celebrated novel which became Gettysburg. So it's they're they are tied, they are linked. Um but I don't think we'll be doing God's Generals. I think it's a less interesting movie uh than Gettysburg in very many ways, aside from being, you know, very either unthinking or intentionally uh uh lost cause apologia with St. Stonewall Jackson. Uh, I don't think the actors are doing as many interesting things. I don't think it has an interesting. I think Stephen point. Lang is interesting as now. This this is the you know one of the connections yeah. is Stephen Lang is in both playing two really 
uh, different Confederate characters. Stephen Lang is in Gettysburg as Pickett. Right. Um, playing Pickett as, you know, as he's often historically remembered, like what what goes with a character who is predominantly remembered for being a bit of a oiled ringlet dandy um, of that style. Stephen Lang plays plays the character that way. And then the other end of the spectrum in Gods and Generals is his Stonewall Jackson, a man with one foot in heaven uh, as as the film sort of makes out. And I think Stephen Lang is in, like, I think Stephen Lang's good. I think he's he, he does something interesting in that movie. I think the movie sucks. Um, and even if he even if he has a compelling like way of channeling this idea of Stonewall Jackson, that character is still not interesting in a movie as inert as Gods and Generals. Yeah, there's really so little going on. It moves from uh, battle to battle, setting to setting, with a the Marble Man, uh, Stonewall Jackson, at the center of it. And even if you play him as a pious, pious character and try to bring something interesting out of that piety. I'm not sure the director, uh, Maxwell, really can make it work. Gettysburg, on the other hand, is kind of one of my favorite battle movies. Hands down. And I maybe mean, one of the greatest movies about a battle yeah, there, as there, waged by commanders that's ever been made. There are three great battle movies, to my mind. There's Zulu, there's Waterloo, and there's Gettysburg. That's my trilogy of the three, like... Films that are just focused on one battle and the management of that battle. Uh, Gettysburg is, you know, it's four hours long. <laughs> uh, it is uh, the director's cut added like another 15 or 20 minutes. I accidentally the watched the director's cut for this. Just yeah. FYI. I didn't, yeah, me too. I didn't realize. And I was like, was Reynolds in this this much? Was there a town sequence? I forgot. Yes, it goes on. It, it, it goes on. Uh, it is a long film. I first saw this in theaters in 1993. A friend and I went to it. It was a nearly empty theater. Uh, but we went, a uh, friend and I, of mine, we went to this and we sat there. It had an intermission. Uh, thank God. Um, but at least they were comfy seats. Um, yeah. So yeah, it is, it is, I think, one of the great battle movies. And I think it, the way it deals with command, uh, how they handle the Union and the Confederate's forces are very different. You know, it's based on Charles' novel, so it follows Charles's biases, uh, what it chooses to leave out, and the portrayal of yeah. probably the three key, the, probably the four main characters of this film, uh, Lee, Longstreet, Chamberlain, and I guess maybe, if you want to say the battlefield itself, maybe Armistead? Maybe Pickett and his men. The, the, the Pickett's yeah. division is almost like the last character in this. Right. And I think they sort of stand in for the bonhomie and spirit of the Confederate army of the first like half of the war uh, that would be annihilated at Gettysburg. Right. Uh, right? This, is an, this is an army. You can't imagine these men wading through the trenches of Petersburg. Um, but that's the ultimate fate of this army, right? Uh, but here, the sun is high in the sky on the Confederate cause. Yeah, this is the, the, the last gasp uh, of the Confederacy in, in many ways. So how do we want to talk about this? <laughs> so I think, you know, there's, there's, there's a few different angles, but I think, you know, honestly, I want to, 
we, we we're talking about the lost causery of gods and generals which genuinely like you've not seen this movie i now i didn't see gettysburg in the theaters uh i saw gods and generals in the theaters and troy i have never like i am hard pressed to name another movie where i went in as excited and left so like this is more than the star wars prequel trilogy this is my like you have got to be fucking kidding me uh <laughs> moment of you go from movies like Gettysburg to Gods and Generals. You even recycle some of the same cast, but it's just it's it's intolerable. Um, the movie is so hell bent on portraying the Confederate commanders as like legitimate saints. Um, like these are these are men almost universally like touched by God. Uh, you know, blessed with a sense of divine purpose um, and just masters of their craft. And to demonstrate that, we get lots of endless sequences of them just sort of gazing, you know, into the distance. Uh, again, their their eyes on heaven um, as they just like buzzsaw through the Union Army again and again. That, and, and that's one of its real sins is in addition to the Lost Causery. Um, the battles are never interesting uh, because it can't even it, the movie has no interest even in portraying the Union Army as an adversary. Um, it is so desperate to like make the lost cause case of the union is inept. Uh, they, they, you know, they only win this war through numbers that like in every battle, it's a foregone conclusion uh, that the union is going to be utterly smoked uh, by the Confederates. And I think the reason I mention all of this is because I honestly like kind of suspect that on the page and as a matter of intention, Gettysburg might have gone the same way except for choices like except for a couple things that are just baked into the text of Shara's novel and then specific choices made by Tom Berenger and Martin Sheen that I think utterly derail the lost cause apologia that I think is there on the page of the script. Well, you can still see some of the union ineptitude in uh, the script of the film and in the uh, portrayal in the direction, in that we see the Confederate high command. We see them do their planning. We see Leon Longstreet looking at the topography and saying, here's what we're going to do. No, we shouldn't do that. Yes, we should do that. Debating it and planning it as generals would. We see Meade for like five seconds. There's no sense that the Union is also planning this battle. They're also fighting. They're pretty much winning just by pure numbers and by the luck of Buford. All the, lo- the lower commanders, they get their day. Chamberlain gets his day. Buford gets his day. Reynolds dies a heroic death. Um, but Hancock if it weren't for them, who, but if it weren't for them, this battle would have been over because there's no way that the Union would have been thinking forward enough to take the heights. What a clever idea to take the heights. How brilliant. Who would have thought of that? Um, but so there is kind of that sense that this is, this is really a film about how the Confederates lost the Battle of Gettysburg more than how Meade won the Battle of Gettysburg. Right. And I think some of the... so. I think it ends up working structurally because it it was clear to me watching it this time that the entire 
opening sequences around Buford is the thing that haunts him is the notion of what he sees so clearly coming to pass, right? Of if I don't do this, if I do not commit the army to fighting this battle in the way I see it in the, in the ground that I think they should be fighting it on, then I know for certain beyond any doubt that in a couple days time, the union army is going to be hurled up those heights and destroyed. And he's like, and, and the horror isn't just that the union army will be destroyed, but it is the fact that you will have been a Cassandra in all this, right? This is ultimately what, yeah. what, what Buford really dreads is the, is the feeling of being a Cassandra yet again in this army and knowing that all the choices that are being made have a preordained conclusion. And his only chance to stop it is to make this stand uh, west of Gettysburg and like hold out long enough for the union to get on the heights beyond the town. And the second half of the film, of course, is that it isn't Buford who's going to be made to, you know, to, to sort of play that role. It's Longstreet. By the end, there's like mirror, there are lines that are basically mirrors of what Buford says at the start and what Longstreet is saying as the, as the Pickett's charge attack becomes more and more inevitable. Um, and so like structurally they, they sort of juxtapose it as, you know, it is Buford has been the guy in this role before he is, he is committing the union to avoiding these, these mistakes. And of course now, uh, you know, the, the person who's ultimately going to play that role is the person who spends the preponderance of our time in the film with, uh, James Longstreet. I also think Berenger in, in particular, um, so for one, the most lost cause statements do come out of his mouth in this movie. He makes a he he says something to a British military observer in this film that is preposterous, uh, which is that, you know, he says we should have freed the slaves, then fired on Fort Sumter. Right. This argument yeah. that slavery is this millstone around the Confederacy's neck and it makes them it will make them unable to get the kind of foreign aid they require. Um, this is true, but nobody would have said, you know, I mean, there's no world in which we should have freed the slaves and then fired on Fort Sumter would have made any goddamn sense. Well, to anybody. no, because they, because they only filed on Fort Sumter because right. of slavery. Yeah, right. And so, like, the the movie is trying to launder this notion of, like, what are they all fighting for? Not real sure. There's uh, a lot the, of that. The union, the union general uh, generals. um the Longstreet, uh, the, the Chamberlain boys uh, mm -hmm. in the 20th Maine are both committed abolitionists. Um, their position is adamant that, yes, of course, this war is about slavery. Um, and there's some interesting, you know, tweet like, you know, there's some interesting arguments made on that side uh, that I want to get to separately. But from the Confederate side, there's an awful lot of, uh, you know, when you meet confederate prisoners of war they're just like why can't you just let us live the way we want to live and y'all live how you want to live well it's the, old, uh, it's, the old, it's the old shelby foot thing we're fighting you because you're down here right um and and mind you there was something to that uh in terms of like what mobilized a lot of like confederate foot soldiery uh about this um and like there was the army in Northern Virginia did not like going north of the Potomac uh, because there were a lot of forces, 
there are a lot of troops in there who who didn't see what the point of fighting off home ground really was. But you can't get from there to this wasn't about slavery. Right. This movie tries. Uh, it tries to get there. Um, I don't think it fully pulls it off uh, because, again, you have the the union forces sort of being very clear about what the stakes are. I think I do not think this line made the final cut of the film. But when Jim Kemper, one of the brigadiers under Pickett, is trying to explain like what the cause was for for secession, he gives this he gives this really ugly rant where, you know, see the, the frustration of nobody seems to get it. And as he wraps up, he starts to say, you know, it's the he's always about the and people cut him off at that point because it's getting embarrassing, right? Like, don't you're saying you're saying the quiet part loud. Um, interesting that movie that didn't make the final cut, right? Because I think that does get at something, which is that you're trying to make this like legalistic moral case for we should have been able to secede. And then when the chips are down, what it comes down to is, and we're sick of always hearing about our slaves. Leave us alone. Um, but I don't think they made the final cut. I think they no. got rid of that. It did not make the final cut. Uh, it is. I mean, the, there really isn't a lot about the war itself. Um, it's a little bit, of course, yeah, because you have to have explaining to the audience, you know, what the war is is for. But it's you know you'll see it in con the, you know, the conversations or the campfire, uh, talking to the British attaché. Um, there's a runaway slave. Uh, that uh, the chamber that the bunny of the main finds. I'm not even sure. I don't think that made the cinematic cut either. No, uh, he did. So, but I'm not sure you see them trying to treat, like there's a brief reference to we found uh, a runaway. But also, by the way, you know, the, the film doesn't. So the novel's treatment of this is actually more interesting. I have not read the novel. So this happens in the novel. And what takes Chamberlain aback is that he has a really racist react. It's the first black man he's ever seen. And, or at least maybe the first slave, but I think it's the first black man he's ever seen. He's sort of surprised by like how other he finds this guy. And he's sort of wrestling, wrestling with that um, in this, in this sequence where it's like, here I am fighting to like liberate the slaves. And also at the same time, um, I think in the in the novel, it's handled much more as like the divine spark speech is much more him sort of struggling to find it um, in that sequence, because instead what he what he feels is sort of an alienated uh, reaction, um, which I think does get at something. About northern racism, uh, right, about how quickly the cause of abolition kind of ends up getting abandoned uh, by by a lot of northerners. Um, and the North ends up not being a sanctuary to freedmen uh, who sort of thought it might be uh, in that way. But yeah, the sequence is substantially changed. Um, the other thing they leave out is my actual guess is if you found uh, like a person who was fleeing slavery in the Gettysburg campaign, it's probably somebody that the army in Northern Virginia rounded up during their invasion, right? This is the thing that doesn't get talked about a ton, but like when they went North in 63, 
their orders were to if we if we find uh black people freedmen or uh liberated slave or whatever we are bringing them back in uh and that was something they did in their in that campaign my guess is that's probably who you'd find uh escaping uh slavery in those situations uh but they don't talk about that instead in the director's cut the movies it pains to point out that you know lee wants the army to conduct itself properly on northern soil um you know treat people humanely uh wage a gentlemanly war um which which was true it's just that didn't extend to like black americans yeah um but i, I, I always to- found I, f- I find that scene fascinating because it along with uh picard in star trek used the uh what a piece of work is man speech from shakespeare and they did not get the point of hamlet's speech at all Nope. How the whole point of how is it? Yeah, man's so great. What a piece of crap he is. I hate him. And here's Chamberlain and Picard. It's the same thing in search. Say, this speaks about how wonderful man is. No, we did the end. You dummies. Right. And I think <laughs> the, I think what's actually makes the scene work better than maybe it does on the page of the novel. Um, and what makes the scene work at all is that uh, Kevin Conway is there. Yeah. as his his first sergeant for the 20th Maine, uh Buster Kilrain. And he gives I mean first of all Kevin Conway is just a fucking pro. Um you know, he's I don't think he had a huge film career. Uh, I think he was always more of a stage stage actor, but um he he is a great performer and he gives he gives a great speech about um the way these principles fall short of reality. Uh, that he gives a more hu- he, he gives a more directly humanist speech, right? Which is that you have to take people as individuals. Um, you know that if you are if you are still trying if you are still in the business of reducing people to like groups, uh, then you are then you are doing it wrong, right? Then you are not rec- you are not actually recognizing uh, what is common humanity because common humanity is, it can be ugly or it can be beautiful. But there is no default to it. And I think this right. is what Chamberlain is trying to get at with that misquoting of, of Shakespeare, where like the divine spark of humanity, and this you know, this is a this is a strain of abolitionist thought. It's it's, it's real and it, it motivated a lot of uh, you know a, a lot of action there was was that, you know, we are all we are all children of God, that you know, there's no there's no difference uh, you know, between humans uh you know based based on race that that is that is not that is not how god sees us um kilrain is making more of a an argument that probably goes down more smoothly in a more humanist period which is yeah people might suck but it has nothing to do with race it has everything to do with like what is the what is the character of a person and where his argument actually goes um is that he says we have to win this war because it, like for him, the thing that is at stake is aristocracy that he doesn't say this outright, but what he sees is a Southern plantation class that via slavery, uh, via the stratification of their society dreams of recreating like feudal aristocratic relationships that place all people beneath the boot of like class and privilege 
And that's what he's fighting to destroy, right? That we are going to cut these people down uh, so they can't oppress, uh, you know, people like us, um, whoever, whoever we are, which I think is an interesting direction to go with it. Um, you know, and, and certainly I think sort of hints maybe at some of the, the arguments around reconstruction, right. Where I think kill, they don't, again, they don't get at this directly, but kill rain is kind of articulating a more Sherman esque We are going to burn these plantations to the ground and redistribute them. You know, you can see kill rain getting on board with that program. Um, Rather than just sort of leaving it at, and now we've abolished the institution of slavery, and so people are free to be be what they want. Um, but I don't know. The, I keep coming back to Longstreet, Troy, because I think the the thing that jumped out at me watching this is, I think there's a lot of sequences where the movie's trying to promote the mythology around Lee. Uh, you know, that he is a special man of incredible character, uh, a father to his men, um, an inspiration to the generals around him. And I feel like the way Beringer portrays Longstreet is as a guy who realizes he's joined a cult. And I think it's an inspired yeah. choice, but to me, in every scene, he is hedging what he says he is non-committal and increasingly seems freaked out by what is happening around him and what he hears being discussed um and i think that's a brilliant choice that probably saves the movie there's so much of this film i mean it's, that wouldn't work without uh sheen's uh, lee beside him lee is portrayed as someone who believes his own height he's someone who has been believes he has this divine call of providence and believes everything that his very loyal sycophantic officers tell him. They all tell him he's a creature of God and of destiny, that he's invincible. Uh, you know, he's the, he's convinced that, you know, even that all the union officers are afraid of him, that all he has to do is show up and the victory will come, that he has some intuitive knowledge of uh, where the battle is going to be won and lost. And, Throughout, uh, everyone else is talking about Lee when he's not there. And so you're not going to tell me that Lee is descended from a monkey. Uh, this sort of he is above humankind. He is something special and unique. Um, everyone's trying. Everyone's disappointed. Uh, I think the aside from Lee, we have. Uh, I mean, even when Ewell pushes back a bit, um, that's probably the only other time anybody pushes back on Lee is when Ewell says, "Look." You told him it was impractical. It wasn't practical. It's following your orders. But then he meekly tries to offer his you know, resignation. But throughout this, we have Longstreet kind of standing at the side, speaking the truth to power, saying, look, the way this battle is shaping up, if we didn't win it on the first day, we're not going to win it now. We just don't have every, we don't, we don't have what we need. Let's, let's turn. Let's go south towards Washington and do what we do best. Wait till the Union is in a place where we can crush them. Because they're not going to attack. Um, and throughout this, you have this skepticism of Lee's decision-making from Behringer's Longstreet and this terrible, terrible beard. But he never pushes back entirely. He pushes back enough, but he'll always give the order. He's not going to be mutinous about this. He will tell Pickett, here's what you've got to do. Go and do it. Um, 
then when he, when the spy Harrison, the spy <laughs> comes to say, okay, can you give me a musket? And he explains, do you know what's going to happen? He yeah. knows how this battle is going to be lost, and he plays it out in mind-numbing detail what we're going to be seeing on screen for the next 30 minutes, because they give that Pickett's Charge a full 30 minutes. Uh, and we watch it all play out, and he is a man who is, he knows the war is, he knows the war is lost because that battle is lost, because Lee cannot give up the idea, and his men can't give up the idea that the Army of Northern Virginia is unbeatable. Yeah, and I, and I think it is... He, he does... He keeps hedging, and it, it's, it's sort of like... I can't work out whether it's that he is merely resigned. Uh, the, he, he, like... You know, there's a point where, you know, you were so deep into this cult at this point, this cult of personality that like, you know, if you push these points any harder, um, you know, like you'll you'll just get yourself, you know, completely taken out, taken out of the lineup. But like but but also at the same time, he does, you know, for all his reservations and maybe this is the other thing. He loves Lee and he does treat Lee like a father figure. but. Unlike the worshipful way that a lot of the other characters interact with him, um, I think like Beringer's Longstreet interacts with Lee almost like as an ailing parent. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Someone who's just showing the first signs of maybe mental and physical inf uh, infirmity, and is working out how to navigate that as well. Because certainly, this is baked into Shara's portrayal of him in the novel, which is that. Lee was diagnosed over the course of that winter with uh, heart disease. Um, he is he is ailing during the campaign. Um, he is not he's a bit fogged in uh, in a way that he has not been in previous campaigns. And I think Sheen goes fully with that, which is and I, and I think she I think Sheen's performance is great. I think it's a, a really nuanced thing, which is that. He alternates. But he alternates between these moments of seeming lost in a fog, um, you know, seeing the world as he wishes it to be, not what not what it is, um, a bit deluded. But then you also see the moments where he's a first rate captain, right? He is a great leader of this of this army. Um, and I think what comes through maybe the director's cut a little more clearly as, as well is that he is a guy who has also lost a number of the people he trusts the most and is trying to figure out who replaces them, right? Like, the movie Stonewall Jackson haunted that campaign. He haunts the histories of Gettysburg, uh, much as he probably did, you know, the, the Confederate camp in those days. Because, like, he was so recently dead, right? Like, he was, he was commander of half that army, Um and was had just been killed at Chancellorsville. And so the entire structure of that army was completely thrown in upheaval uh, on the eve of this campaign. And I think you get some taste of that. The scenes where Lee is at his headquarters at night, and you can see how skilled he is at recognizing the deficiencies of some of the people he's trusted 
but also trying to do his best to work with what he's got because he just doesn't have, there's no space to fix these issues. Uh, and ultimately these are not the issues that will cost the rebels, the, the battle. Uh, but you know, when, when you have the, when he, when he gets the report from Trimble about how you'll choked, uh, you know, and, and, and refuse to advance uh, on an open uh, union flank. And has the conversation with Yule later where, you know, after Yule does sort of tuck his tail between his legs and apologize for being overly cautious, Lee backs off and is like, hey, you know, we still won. We could have won a greater victory, but you still, you and your men still won. Um, and I think it's, it's, that scene got cut, but um, I think you still get it from the scene with, with Stuart where he gives him a genuine, like, chewing out, but also recognizes, like, I can't spare you. I can't replace you, and I don't want to. And, you know, when 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 Stuart offer, makes that grand gesture of offering his sword, and Lee's just fed up with it, uh, but also in the wake of that, has to sort of, like, build Stuart back up. Uh, he can't leave it like that, because ultimately, however badly this guy is fucked up, it's he has to be right by morning. He has to be ready to perform by morning. And that's kind of what we see of Lee at his best in this film is his ability to handle people that way at his worst is his, you know, what was the term uh, that I think Japanese high command like suffered from during World war II. They taught like victory disease uh, where they talk about just the, the ridiculous gambles uh, and rosy prognostications. They started to believe you know, Sheen plays Lee as a guy who's deep into that. Um, he can't fathom that there is not something ineffably special about his army. Um, and so he's completely lost touch with reality. I also get some of that sense in that scene with uh, Stuart that he himself is tired of a lot mm -hmm. of the southern formalities southern niceties to have typified the war when he keeps something short there is no time for that i don't have time for you to be some chivalrous asshole here we're in the middle of fighting a battle um it makes me wonder what that lee would have thought about the men around the campfire extolling him as a higher species of human being um if he thought there wouldn't there's no time for this there's no time for these types of gallantries and you know uh picket demanding pretty much i put me near the front of the line my guys haven't seen the action yet how can they go home if they haven't been bloodied up they need to see some action um and longstreet's like you know if you're at the back and we have to turn tail you're at the front again so don't worry we're good um there's this whole sense of the whole cavalier necessity um even the roundheads and cavaliers are, are cited by the uh by Fremantle, the British uh, uh, attache. There's this whole weirdness that I think Lee, Martin, that Sheen's Lee would like to get away from in that scene with Stuart. He just wants to win the battle, but his he sees himself as being let down, even though a lot of this is his own fault. Like his order to Yule was a confusing order, and Yule interpreted it in the most cautious way. Uh, Stuart, yeah, escaped and got out of hand, but, you know, why didn't he notice for two days that Stuart was gone? Like, that should be something to be keeping track of. You shouldn't have to rely on uh, Longstreet's spy to tell you that Stuart's gone missing. Um, 
there is this insistence that his commanders who worship him so much are letting him down continually. Yeah, and he can't he can't address it because uh, you know the he can't address it because like and I need a real sense for this when Yule's entire staff is in that scene in the director's cut. And they all engage in a cover your ass move, right? It's Jubal early. It's Yule. Uh, it's Rhodes. I think Gordon is like every single one of them is basically like covering for the other. Um, you know, nobody's willing to admit that it, you know, that an opportunity was, was blown there. Um, and he can't, the, the thing that is missing, I think the movie gets at this, even if it doesn't articulate, what's really gone wrong here is that in the past for about a one year period, there was this like perfect match between Lee's command style and the character of the generals who surrounded him. Right. You know, like with, with Jackson, that wording would have been sufficient because Jackson's judgment was impeccable in those matters. If practicable would be interpreted correctly. Right. Like do not, don't just don't risk destroying your unit. But, like, if this looks at all doable, go do it. Go find a way to, like, make this work. Yule is not that guy. And Lee doesn't know that about him until, like, you know, this is kind of the moment where it's proven that he's not that guy. But there's only one chance to get this right. Um, and so the moment is kind of lost. Uh, but, you know, then at the same time, Longstreet, Longstreet is the only person still being really honest with Lee and really once they put it like being realistic about the chances uh, that they're taking and the, the state, the, you know, the, the upshot of, of the decisions they're making and everyone else is mostly starting to buy, like everyone else is so eager to prove Lee's faith in them is well-placed that they won't check him uh, at all. And, you know, even even on the morning of the attack, Longstreet is so close, it feels like, to saying, this can't be done, I refuse to give the order. But instead, when he sees Lee's dependent, when, when Lee makes it a more direct appeal, I, I need you with me on this, he he hedges. You know, he's like, you know, if we can do it, he opens the door to maybe this thing could work. And if it works, then, you know, I suppose maybe this, this overall strategy for the battle will work. And Lee walks through that door entirely. You know, he's like, we, you know, don't worry about if it works, it will. So let's just, let's go and get it done. Um, And then the moment he's out of Lee's presence, Longstreet sees the catastrophe looming uh, because, and, and by the way, this is a thing. I think this movie, okay. Troy, for as much as this movie makes about the ground of Gettysburg, did you get a good sense of the ground of Gettysburg watching this movie? Absolutely not. It did a very poor job. It's this a is, problem, right? It, it doesn't is, feel like there's elevation in this movie. This is one of the most famous uh, battlefields in you know war game history. So I've fought it many, many times. Full of you know important landmarks, and there's from the first day to the second day. It's not quite clear where the town is relative to the advance. We're talk we were told about the fish hook. Um, but it's not really 
explained as to where that is relative to where they were fighting on the first day, which is quite a bit to the southeast because the Confederates did push pretty far on that first day. But there's no sense of that. The, the sense of the first day is Buford held up the Confederates and they stopped. Well, that's not true. The Buford held them up, yes, but he was pushed back and the Union had to redeploy south of the city. So there's no sense of that sort of uh, distance or scale. Um, we see a lot of little round top. Um, don't get really a good sense for how little it is <laughs> of you know where the what the angle is, uh, what the trajectory is, how what the scale, what the slope being scaled uh, by the Confederate yeah. Army is. Those trees. I don't. Th- I mean, this was shot at Gettysburg, right? Yes. Those trees look pretty young to be like 130-year-old trees, is what I'm well, saying. in the crediting, they give, you know, they, they credit the, the local county as well as, as giving shooting locations. And I do wonder if the public monuments there were a thing they had to shoot around. And they end up like either using locations that are not actually Gettysburg yeah, or are just having to really carefully frame some shots where like where the battle actually took place, they cannot get a proper vantage on the action they want to show. Right. Because there's just too much like modernity and too much like public monument. I mean, I have to go back and do my reading, but that's a lot of undergrowth. There's very little undergrowth there but a lot of uh, general trees to be doing a bayonet charge through. And I'm wondering if there was a little bit sparser at uh, Little Round Top back in the 1860s. But anyway, uh, there's uh, a lot of the big, most notable features of the battle, like the Devil's Den. We had just a couple of seconds of Devil's Den, yeah, which was a scene of some really horrible fighting and some fantastic photos uh, by Brady. Um after the war, uh, after after the after the battle, just how uh, outstanding it was! It is a great scene for battles. We don't get a lot of it. Uh, we don't see the the peach orchard. We don't see any of the any of the Union screw ups at all. I would have no. liked to have seen why they needed to defend, you know, Round Top because Sickles was out of position. Yeah, you know, Sickles charged forward, broke the line, and got completely massacred. Uh, at uh, in the peach orchard, and then spent the rest of his life trying to explain why that was in fact a heroic thing to do, and got his got his medal of honor eventually for it. Um, but there's except for the final scene where the geography is show me a field with some fences. There really isn't a great sense of where things are relative to each other. No, um, compared to something like Waterloo, where in that film it's it's a much smaller battlefield and it just takes takes place on one day. There's never any confusion over where one thing is next to compared to the other. Uh, when they're planning a Pickett's charge, um, and Lee is referring to the you know, left and the right, I have no sense that there's a hills anywhere on the left or right. We just see nothing but flat expanse as far as the eye can see. Right. And like it, you know, it does come into like the the reason the loss of the, the fact the Union holds on to the round tops is so key, of course, is that 
And Longstreet alludes to it when sort of explaining what the attack is going to have to go through. But they never do set up the fact that, like, from the top of Little Round Top, where the Federals set up their batteries, the entire line of advance for Pickett's Charge was a shooting gallery, right? Like, the entire, the entire valley between the two armies was an open field of fire for Union artillery. You'd think you could get a shot that, like, indicates that. The closest they come is when Chamberlain the next morning is up on the summit of the hill and you get a sense of like, shit, that's really high up. You know what I mean? Like yeah. from where they were fighting near the, near the, you know, the middle of the hill, uh, you don't get a sense for like how high up the, the rise is over the surrounding, surrounding ter- terrain. But like the same thing goes for the same thing goes for cemetery Ridge where, you know, you have, you have uh Buford talking about the best ground ever. Um, you know, you hear Longstreet talking about they have a, the stone wall just like we did at Fredericksburg. But again, you just do not get the sense of like there being much ground that they're going to have to really contest with in terms of like, uh, you know, being exposed to long range fire. And I, I can't I can't figure it out. I, my, my assumption is just. Either they're masking the fact that they can't get the right numbers of troops out there on the field, because uh, even even as big a production as this was, you know, and it was you're not huge. They got thousands get... of reenactors involved in this. Yeah, like this this was the defining reenactor event of like the 1990s, um, which, by the way, does create a problem for this movie because yes. this is you've never seen the Civil War fought by so many middle-aged well well-fed dudes and like it's especially noticed with the confederate army because like famously like both armies um you know famously like union had massive like supply corruption and plus like logistics were just a nightmare uh in america in the 1860s like feeding and and fielding an army was was tough it's worse for the confederates but like you know, a mid-war civil war campaign is basically like bands of, you know, bands of most feral soldiers uh, going at each other. And so, like, you just kind of have to suspend your disbelief when you watch this, where it's like this entire thing is, well, the reenactors are going to do it. Uh, and the reenactors don't actually look remotely like civil war soldiers. Right. Um and because they're wearing their reenactment clothing, you can't use stage blood or anything. So it's a very bloodless battle. Incredibly. And, and that's the thing that... Right, like, I don't know if there is a version of this uh, that, that, does, that does get at that, but, like, you read accounts of the Civil War, it's a nightmare, right? Like, uh, canister shot and solid shot do horrible like jaw-dropping things to human bodies and here what's going to happen uh in the horror of war the worst thing's going to happen is the little reenactor thing of like suddenly clutching your chest and theatrically flopping to the ground and lying still that's kind of how combat is portrayed here um and yeah just like it's it's not like it's still cool to see you know the the sheer raw numbers of of, of troops here uh, but yeah, you're, you're, you're no, you're, 
you're nowhere near the sort of verisimilitude that like a saving private Ryan or something is going for a few years later. Right. It's just, it's, it's not that. So let's talk Um, about Joshua Chamberlain. Yeah. Who is the union hero of the film. Uh, He's the main character for the union. So in 20th Maine, Bowdoin college professor, rhetoric, classics guy, guy after my own heart. Uh, who he's kind of lucky, unlucky. By the up... way, I think his facial hair is worse than worse than Tom Berenger's. I think that mustache is is a bigger atrocity than Tom Berenger's. You think? Uh, I don't know. I I, that, I, I, I can't I, take my eyes off that mustache, dude. I can't I'm... like. I keep thinking it's gonna get unstuck. There's <laughs> a whole walrus in the carpenter thing about it that works for me. Um. I mean, he's many ways. He, as you've mentioned before, he is the you know the union conscience of the film. He's he and his brother are strong abolitionists. They're from Maine. He, because he's a professor, he ends up winning the battle of uh, uh, the little round top with an archaic uh, bayonet charge tactic he probably picked up from uh, an old military manual. Uh, he is. I mean, after the war, I understand there was some debate over whether he exaggerated. Uh, the him and Ellis Spear thing. Yeah. Him and Ellis. Ellis says, referred to Ellis as a character as well. He's a dutiful person. Uh, he was apparently loyal to Chim to the end. But he said, you know, he kind of exaggerated his role and his facility. Um, Vincent Strong has, is generally now considered one of the great heroes of the battle yeah. and we see him briefly before he's killed. Um but Chamberlain's kind of he's the he's the exhausted everyman, right? I mean he is a civilian who's pulled to the war because he believes in it. He's not he wasn't he's not a draftee. He's not somebody who was he he volunteered for this because he believes in the cause. And he never has enough ammo. He never runs out of words. Yeah, it's um, it's a really good performance. I think Daniels does a fantastic oh, yeah. job as this, you know, academic on the battlefield. He's there for a reason, and then he sees death all around him, which would be more convincing if the death was, you know, more than just slightly dirty bodies uh, lying around him. Um, but he always seems to be, even though he's seen a lot of action throughout this film, he seems to be continually shocked, which is surprising for a veteran. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting in the um in the novel, if memory serves, I'm not sure they did much in the uh in Chancellorsville. Um they yeah, so they they miss they miss Chancellorsville entirely. Okay. Um and so the thing that comes through in the book is their experience of war was basically being marched up the hill at Fredericksburg getting mowed down in droves and then piling corpses through the night to try to not get shot by Confederate sharpshooters. And that's all they'd done uh, to that date. And so I think something that like Daniels is channeling is the fact that from like Chamberlain's perspective, they still didn't know much about war. You know what I mean? I mean like they, they've I mean, been through they, a horrible they, battle. They were at Fredericksburg. I mean, that's like the worst battle ever for the union. Right. But like, but what did you do? Well, we got shot and then we hid. Like that's, you yeah. know, they, they didn't, they didn't do much fighting. 
Uh, it was mostly just like trying to stay alive in this in this killing field. And so I think something that like comes through is that in a lot of ways, like Chamberlain is still learning on the job of like what and the movie doesn't quite they allude to this, but it's a great moment in the book is the moment it happens in the film, but it's a huge moment in the book where um he sees a hole opening up and, you know, throughout the movie he's been like, Tom, don't stand too close to me. Tom, like stay, you know, stay safe. Uh, you know, we can't both be in the same place where we both get taken out, uh, you know, destroy our parents. Right. But he sees this, this, this hole opening up and immediately orders Tom with his, with his sidearm uh, revolver to just go in there and plug that hole. And it dawns on him a split second later, as he watches his brother, like wade into this, this maelstrom that like, I just use my brother to plug a hole. Um, and now like Tom is out there, you know, at the tip of the spear, uh, you know, up to his eyeballs and in, in Confederates. Um, and it's this, this moment in the book of like realizing like, wow, he has gone into this really like detached, command mode of it's just it's it's just a problem and everyone's a piece to be moved around uh because all he can see is this job in front of him um and in retrospect he's like kind of horrified by that decision um the movie has this moment and has the uh second main guys sort of saving saving thomas bacon there in a in a cool little moment uh but but yeah i think i think daniels plays him as someone who's had the idealism sort of burned out of him uh, by his experiences of war, but like still is in the process of coming to grips to with, with soldiering. Um, and I think it, it, I think it's a good performance. And I, I, I think, I think it's a tough performance because the thing is, this is a guy who's called upon to speechify. Um, and he has to walk this line between being, a convincingly motivational, inspiring leader, but then also a guy who fundamentally is very awkward about the entire thing. I think Daniels finds that finds that line where he he kind of is sort of taken aback every time, uh, you know, is at the end of the speech to the mutineers uh, who he convinces to join the regiment. You know, he sort of apologizes. He didn't mean to preach, uh, but this is the mode he falls into again and again, and it it so happens that he's good at it. Uh, even as he knows he he may be cutting a slightly ridiculous figure, and I think I think Daniels brings both those things home. It it's the you know I mean it's when the moment where he's he's sitting on top of round top at the end and before he's called, so we'll take you to a nice soft spot near the center of the line. I almost wanted a sad trombone there because it's already because we've already been foreshadowed. That's where the attack is coming. Um, so we never get rid of the 20th vein, which is fine. I think the scenes with the mutineers, that that could have gone really wrong. It, it could have had this huge swell of music and big pride, and I think that's somewhat subdued compared to the repetitive score in a lot of the rest of the film. Um, yeah. So I think he's helped a bit uh, by the, the, the choices the uh, audio engineer uh, makes there and I, 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 it is, it is an interesting role. He's an, and Chamberlain's an interesting character historically. He is somebody who goes on of a very successful career, largely based on his uh, war record, especially his Gettysburg heroics. Uh, his brother Thomas isn't quite so lucky, um, but it is. I, I think you're right that it is something that 
Daniels is walking a very neat and tidy line that I'm not sure a lot of other actors in this film could have pulled off. Uh, because a lot of the actors in this film just have the one note, which is fine because they're just playing, you know, the one note character. So they have, they have, they have a line and that's it. But I, th I, th I think he does a good job of the, the battle itself. The battle at Little Round Top is it, it does go on and it is quite repetitive. Um, the Confederates charge and then they're pushed back. The Confederates charge and they're pushed back. And then there's the final charge. Yeah. At the end, so it could, so that could get to be a bit much. Like I think Pickett's charge is a bit much. I think that there's no reason for that to go on for half an hour the way it does. But I think that the fresh exhaustion and the fresh uh, remaneuvering of the troops, and okay, now we've got to refuse a uh, refuse the flank. Okay, guys, here's what a refused flank is, as he explains to his troops yeah. and to the audience what that is. I think that works much better than the extended Pickett's charge because of the way uh, Daniels is playing Chamberlain with that personal exhaustion and personal frustration with how things are going. Well, and I, and I think it also the way he, the, the fact he is giving these orders almost out of a book, that he's using the terms that guys don't use, right? We'll, we'll refuse the line, we'll do a right wheel forward. Um, you know, these these very sort of, you know, in drill manuals, right. right? But like they're not things that most commanders are are speaking of uh in this era, but he's still pulling from these because this is how he's learned soldiering. Um I think he's helped in terms of the mutineers, I think he's helped by the fact that uh John DL uh is a great TV character actor, um, plays Private Buckland, uh who's the the leader, the ringleader of the mutineers. And I think does a really good job of I think grounding Chamberlain gives an inspiring speech about like the stakes and like you know why it's important to win this next fight um you know why the union cause is noble uh but I think the presence of this grimy like washed up uh private Buckland who is just you know they've been a part of nothing but losing campaigns and he's just he, there's a point where he very convincingly he's so angry he can't even speak anymore you know he's trying to explain like how pissed he is at union commanders and words begin to fail him uh, because he's so disgusted. And I think that it, it's well executed too, because like, you know, the, the flip side of this is the, 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 the reason this kind of ends up being an underdog story in, in some ways is that like the union army always lost the army of the Potomac almost always lost until this point in the war and usually because commanders fucked up badly, right? And the guys knew it. They knew they were badly led. Yeah. Um, and so I think this is, like, th that scene is sort of helped along by the fact that, like, this is what you are up against. Um, it's that for, for a lot of these troops, whatever the cause, they just want out now. Uh, because this is starting to feel like all that's going to happen is you're going to keep getting killed. Um, because of these, like, second raiders. Um, you saw one note performances, and that that does kind of bring me to. It's a little unfair because Pickett's brigadiers—they're all meant to be not quite a chorus, like they're 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 too individually characterized for that. But the guys around the campfire, um, in the con on the Confederate side, 
I think for the most part are left to hit sort of the same notes again and again. I have never wanted to hang out with somebody less than uh, Low Armistead <laughs> in this movie, uh, who is one of the brigadiers under Man, Pickett. No, who was just just best. He's just the best friend of uh, of uh, Union Corps commander uh, Hancock, but the way they ha- the way they make that try to make that real, you know, ah, this is a war pitted brother against brother, best friends. Is just to have this guy wax sentimental exhaustingly uh, in every scene about just how much he loved Hancock and to the point where it just it, you know, at a certain point, I'm like, is this. Is this like a gay is the movie saying this is a gay relationship, because like it is it is that overwrought that it's it's absolutely like you're, you're saying they're being like this guy's in love with Hancock. More than that, what it made me think of is the guy who thinks he's your who thinks you're his best friend. Yes, and you're the coolest guy in the world, and he's convinced you're his best friend. You're he's your best friend because you're his best friend. Uh, and man, yes. I just love I just love that Winfield Hancock man. We had so much fun. I really hope I get to see him again at the battlefield. Can I get a pass to see him. Can I get a pass to see him because we had so much fun in California. Oh boy, he's the hottest wife. Have you been talking? Have you met his wife? His wife's so hot. That's what it reminds me of more than the homoeroticism, uh, which is you know, I mean, we laugh a lot about historians saying oh that who say that all these old deep male bonding relationships were just friends. It's become a common joke that uh, his old historians say that. But people did talk uh, differently about male friendship back then. But this film does go way, way over the top into creepy zone. Yeah, and it is it is like fixation levels of like it's all the dude talks about. It's the only the only stuff he's given to say until like right before Pickett's charge. Uh, where he talks about the greatness of Virginia. Uh, boy, what a what a luckless role in a lot of ways. Richard Jordan uh, as Louis Armistead, but and the, and the fact that like in those scenes, he's always confessing these things to Longstreet. And again, Tom Berenger's decision to play him play himself as a guy who's recently sort of awakened to the fact he's in a cult. Um, the way it makes all the scenes read is that Longstreet's skin is just crawling off his bones. He does not want to be there. He does not no. want to be hearing this story at all. The the night before Pickett's charge, after the second the second day of battle, and he's like, you know, Lowe is crying in his tent, and he's like, can you please give give this, in the event of my death, give this this parcel to Myra Hancock? And Tom and, and not, just, not even to Hancock, to Hancock's wife. And Tom Barron just stares him down and reluctantly takes it and is like, okay. But just like, whatever it takes, man, please get out of my house. And and then we meet Hancock briefly uh, at the end. He doesn't seem that great. No. I mean, he's He's fine. fine. He's fine. And it almost seems like he's just obligated to get when he meets when he meets Chamberlain, he's almost obligated to give a speech. But man, it sure is tough being on the other side of the war. Boy, I sure, you know, my best friend is over. That's tough. But like. I think probably close to the truth of the man is when they're advancing and he's like, let's flank these bastards. <laughs> like, I think this is this is also part of I was reminded of. um, I've seen some things in more recently like World War One historiography. 
where like the shit about the Christmas truce, right? Yeah. One that is not as widespread as, you know, is often reported. Uh, and two that like, it tended to be like really mawkish sentimental German troops pulling the shit of like, you know, Hey, can we have a, can we play football? Can we sort of exchange gifts between the lines? And like the argument I've seen some historians make is like, Hey, like the reason, like, like one of the reasons you see a lot, like the myths of these are promulgated by Western chauvinists, right? Like it's Conan Doyle is a huge proponent of the story of the Christmas truce and what a stirring, beautiful sight it is. Um, and for guys like that, the tragedy of World War One is that all your advanced, you know, white Western nations were demolishing each other rather than doing what they should be doing, which is governing the world. Um, but then, too, the, the, you know, the fact that, man, the Germans started this war. Like, yeah, you can you can point out you can, you can argue that, like, you know, the diplomatic situation was a powder keg and like imperialism was was at the root of this, but, but also like, this was a fundamentally aggressive war and it's the Germans there at the, you know, in the, in the Christmas truce, uh, who are basically trying to kind of call time out and be like, see, you know, we're not, you know, this isn't real enmity. We're not, we're not monsters here. Uh, and I, I, I was sort of thinking about that strain in, in recent historiography as I sort of look at this, because I do think if you look at a lot of, what union generals said at the time and certainly in the wake of the civil war, um, as they were watching the lost cause myth take, take shape, man, a lot of these guys really liked killing Confederates. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> they like, yes, it was, it was unfortunate that like they didn't like that. So many of their friends had chosen to turn traitor, but that is how a lot of them framed it. Yeah. Right. Which is that you made a horrible fucking decision, my friend. And now we're going to have to kill you. And that this movie kind of tries to deny that, right? Where it's like, you know, and Hancock missed missed Armistead. Well, just you as know much what? Armistead given Han given Hancock's work after the war, being President Johnson's point man on Reconstruction, with Reconstruction in air quotes, because he thought Andrew Johnson was on the right track, maybe Hancock would have been just fine with Armistead staying alive. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's true. But yeah, uh, I mean, there is this, but it isn't just in that. We have that whole scene with uh, Thomas uh, Chamberlain with yep. the uh, Confederate prisoners, where it's everyone saying, you know, they're explaining why they're fighting the war, but also it's a chance for them to say, well, see you in hell, Johnny Reb. We're just having some fun here. Uh, it's not really a serious, they're, we're all just one of a kind. Wouldn't it be nice if this war we're fighting the sense of this war is being fought for no reason? Why are we doing this? This is somehow the yeah. politicians' fault, which it kind of is. But it's, you know, some politicians more than others. Um, it's not you know, Lieutenant Chamberlain for Maine's fault that some kid from Virginia has been plucked out of his farm. Yeah. Um. So there's, but you know, these conversations might have happened at the time, but the whole, this whole, this is the thing about civil war, right? I mean, you have the same thing in you know, the English civil war where all oh, families are torn apart and they're fighting each other. Yeah. These are noble families and they both have made money on the both sides and they're probably not going to be killing each other over it. Um, yeah. So, you know, 
chill with the brother against brother stuff. Yeah, some families are going to be torn apart and some friendships are going to end. But this is the nature of all civil wars. It doesn't make the civil war special or unique. It doesn't even make it necessarily interesting. It also could say something interesting about the fact that, hey, this is a nation falling apart. All civil wars are like this. but somehow when we talk about, you know, the Afghan civil war, we never talk about brother against brother. And I think maybe the sort of only like Longstreet's response when people try when when Armistead tries to talk about, you know, it shows you what, what one honest man, meaning Robert E. Lee, can do and a cause. And Longstreet's like he basically gives a speech, he's like, I don't believe in the cause. He specifically says I never go in for that stuff much myself, but his like, again, the way he's portrayed is that he's a man without conviction. You know what I mean? He is, he is there as a professional. He chose, he did choose out of like regionalism to stand with the South, um, but doesn't actually have any real conviction that they have a cause. And, you can sort of put these lines in, in Longstreet's mouth because alone among, you know, the this level of Confederate command, he's the guy who becomes Republican and sort of signs on with Reconstruction. Yeah. Um, and sort of the last battle he receives a wound in is fighting what amounts to the Klan, uh, you know, unsuccessfully. Um, but, you know, that sort of the last fights he fought were were against... Uh, you know, white supremacist mobs, uh, you know, trying to overthrow reconstruction governments. And so you can sort of put that, you can get away with that. Cause like Longstreet is one of the few guys here. You can look at who you're like, what were you doing with, with these people? You know, what were you doing on this yeah. side? Um, but he's also the one who after the war is like, you know, he says, you know, he basically says Lee was not at his best uh, during this battle, and he kind of cost us the war over the period of these three days. Yeah, um, and so he becomes uh, anathema. And Longstreet pays for that, for his reputation. Yeah, uh, in the South, muddied for you know a century. Yeah, right. Like I think certainly via this book, I think Longstreet's a much more popular figure in the North than he ever will be among, uh, you know in the in the south or among people who more come from that like lost cause narrative tradition around like the douglas Savall well, Freeman. The, the daughters of the confederacy are not going to be having a long street dinner anytime soon right um so i mean that, that like that's a that's the way the this movie ends up handling some of this is like the most you know the tragedy of it as Longstreet points out is that like this whole thing is a nightmare you just pick your nightmare side and you try to end it. And this is maybe, and this is the, where it strikes the note of sympathy with Lee is that, yes, this is also, this is all the, the thing that is driving him to make desperate decisions and bad decisions here is desperation to get out of this, uh, that he can't, that he can't keep doing this uh, much longer physically, mentally. Um, it is, it is taking a toll that he cannot continue to continue to pay. Um, but yeah, like I, I think for the most part that the gallery of characters in Longstreet's camp uh, all end up being pretty one dimensional. I don't think they do a great job of sketching out why Richard Garnett uh, is so desperate to die for the Confederacy 
they don't really allude. Like, man, somebody should have just explained, you know, Stonewall Jackson called him a coward right before he got shot and killed, right? Because, uh, you know, he is out there trying to redeem himself, um, you know, for, for no damn good reason. Um, gosh, I kind of wonder also, did they leave that detail out because it shows Jackson in such a horrible light? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Jackson could be an incredibly cruel man. Oh, yes. And, you know, like, again, elevated to sainthood uh, for the, among the Confederates after, after his death. But, like, he did shit like that routinely. Uh, placing officers under arrest, um, accusing them of cowardice. Like, you know, in a certain way, he's a very patent-like figure in the way he could be, like, an incredibly petty bully uh, and unjust to people under his command. Um, and the movie just doesn't quite like, why does, why does Garnet feel the need? He has to go kill himself to remove some stain. What's the stain movie doesn't tell us. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a thing that is known by the characters in the movie, but not by the audience, unless you know the history. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of that in this film though, right? I mean, the assumption is the people who care about this movie are people who care about the civil war. This is a film for Civil War nerds, which is why yes. they can do Shara's book and leave so much out of the battle itself, because you know, we're just doing Shara's book, and if you want to read uh, Battle of Gettysburg, check out the book at your local library. Uh, sort of thing. Uh, or, you, or you already know, because you're the target audience. But yeah, I mean, leaving out Garnet's just demand to charge forward, and how I gotta be on a horse, and all this, it's, it's very much... It is not, it, it's conspicuously not commented upon. Yes. Um, even though this is, you know, this is his last, this is his last stand. He gets his wish. Um, like so many uh, people did. There is, there's a high officer casualty count at the Battle of Gettysburg. Yep. As there were in most of war battles, but. Right. And that's, well, and that's, that's the other man is it's like. I think there's certainly an argument to be made that because of the difficulty the Confederates have in replacing some of their losses, there's always the argument that from 18, basically from like second Manassas onward, the Confederate army only starts getting weaker, right? Because whatever yeah. gains they make in competence are offset by loss of manpower and also by like some of the attrition among officers that they're just having trouble making good. I actually think though the union is mind-bogglingly unlucky. You know, the movie doesn't get at this, but like all these colonels were destroyed, all these colonels were killed, all these brigadiers were killed. Man, the Union Army just gets like a scythe goes through their officer ranks. Uh, you know, at every battle and so many of their best officers die early in the war. Yeah. The people who probably should have been running the Army of the Potomac uh end up like because the battles keep going so poorly you keep having like potentially legendary union generals dying because they like they were on the scene and realized like shit somebody's got to lead a counter charge somebody's got to lead a recon by fire because this entire thing is going to hell and so you have so many union generals uh getting slaughtered gettysburg would not like gettysburg's a bad day uh but you know I think from a, from a union perspective, some of these losses, yeah, it's rare a division gets completely wiped out, but like, man, there's a lot of battles where a lot of the people you're counting on to lead the army uh, through its next campaign just don't make it, don't make roll call uh, by sundown. 
And of course, the Union also had the problem where they were continually rotating out the leader of the Army of the Potomac. They kept changing it repeatedly. Uh, in three yeah. years, they had what, four or five commanders. Uh, you know, well, they had McClellan, Burnside, and Hooker. It was Hooker, and then it was Meade, I think. So you have four. Yeah. And that's, you know, so there's, and a lot of that time was with McClellan, you know, doing his Duke of York impression, going up a hill and then down again. And not doing a whole lot with the army that God had given him. Uh, meanwhile, Burnside, Hooker, and Meade—they're ex—Brooker, Burnside, and Hooker's experiences with battle were not great. But did they just need more time? Did they just need to have better? Were there any subordinates they could count on? Um, yeah. The fact that the early battles were generally either, in, at least in the Eastern Front, either just total routes. Or you know indecisive engagements led by McClellan. There's not a lot of chance to demonstrate competence, and I think we get no. more of that at Gettysburg. We have you know uh, under commanders demonstrating initiative, um, and part of part of that is because it's really the first time I think that the Union had a strong defensive position. Yeah, maybe with the exception of like Malvern Hill yeah. in the seven days. Right. Like that's probably the only other time they really end up posted up uh with a with a real kill zone in front of them. And by the way, like you know, Malvern Hill is probably what turns the seven days campaign into a much more equivocal outcome. Yeah. Uh because that thing goes so poorly for the Confederacy. Uh that like, you know, McClellan continued to fall back. They were not going to continue pressing through positions like that. No. Uh, but yeah, and I, I think, you know, this is, uh, you know, this is less. Uh, I think Gettysburg is smart to focus where it focuses. Like, I think the story of Lee losing this battle and like Longstreet bearing witness to it and the annihilation of this like core of the Confederate army. Like it's I think it's a great story uh, and it's it's a compelling one. I think my regret, honestly, the thing I, that drives me nuts about gods and generals is that the far more interesting story in a lot of ways is like the ma the political machinations of Union High Command and like the, you know, you get a taste of it in Gettysburg. Yeah. The fact that so many people on this lower level have no real faith in the people leading their army. Right, no and, real faith. Buford's almost already given up. He knows that well. Meade's going to be slow. I'm going to stand here and do nothing. I can either I can either I can either do nothing and ensure what's going to happen, or I can give him a chance to catch up. But he has no faith that yeah. uh, Meade's going to be there in time. And and his men barely do either. They have faith in him. They have faith in themselves that we're a good outfit. But you know when they're trying to buck themselves up, you know, yeah, we can hold them. We can we can we can hold them all the live long day. You know, thoroughfare gap. We held Longstreet for six hours, and uh, Devon, I think, immediately is like, and then they never came. We held for nothing. Yeah, um, which is the story of the Union Army, right? Like you know, huge heroic feats happen. Doesn't matter. Uh, the Iron Brigade wins its name uh, at Second Manassas by like single handedly staving off a Confederate, uh, you know, attack into the Union column. It doesn't matter. The next day, the Union Army probably receives its worst ass kicking of the war. Um, you know, the, the Iron Brigade saves the day only for Pope to uh, completely like shatter the army on the next. Uh, and that's sort of the arc they have. I don't think Gettysburg has to Gettysburg will lose to these things. I think it's a weakness of the film that we don't get any of the sense of this. Like, again, the Union 
feels like it's an underdog at this point in yeah. the film. They are they are they are an army that's been kicked around a lot. They've been like you know kicked around literally in the last like two or three weeks. Um, but I think the other thing is you don't without that being made clear. Sheen's Lee almost comes across as a little more of a mad prophet rather than the thing that is actually not entirely unreasonable for him to believe is that he can break the union out of any position if he just hits them hard enough because historically that was the play. Uh, And like, yeah, he picked a bad location for it. It was a bad place to test this theory of like the army, but you don't get a sense from this movie of like why Lee doesn't recognize that this is madness. And yes, part of it is uh, that he's just making miscalculations right and left in this. But the other part of it is, you know, you lose this at the end. He apologizes to the men. I, you know, I didn't think we could lose. I didn't think this could happen. But we actually don't get a great sense of why does he believe that. Um, and I think you'd almost need to tell the story of the Union troops a little better. Yeah. To make it clear why Lee has such over, overwhelming confidence that like numbers, ground, it's all kind of meaningless uh in this war and it doesn't get i mean necessarily even easier for the union at the, at, after this i mean it's not like gettysburg is immediately uh going to lead to nothing but rolling up the confederates here i mean look if chickamauga what in september later on and that's just an absolute bloodbath for for both sides uh but it's generally seen as a as a confederate victory um because they could not they could not press their advantage, uh, despite, you know, advantages in tech and cavalry and, you know, uh, rough parity in army sizes. Yeah, it would have been, not, I mean, it's, I, I think that if we had seen more why Lee believed in himself and believed in his army, it would have also shown and presaged why he was doomed here, because he was yeah. a man who did not count the troops he was willing to lose. He was somebody who acted as if he didn't have a very short timer of available manpower, who would, you know, like, I mean, like Samuel Jackson as well, who would waste men and brilliant pieces of of generalship that, yes, would overwhelm the enemy, but men that could not afford to be lost. Um, So even showing those amazing tactical victories and why the Union was, you know, why everyone thought the Union could have lost this battle. Because you want, yeah, you look at the movie and the, how, how could they possibly lose this? It'd be an idiot to lose this battle. Um, but yeah, so a way to show the confidence of the Army of North Virginia and to justify some of the doubts of the sub-commanders of the Union Army, who again are the only ones we see. We don't get, we're never allowed to get confidence in Meade. Yeah. Who ends up remaining in command of the Potomac Army until the end. Yeah. Um, they found their guy. It just turns out he was not going to be supreme commander of the entire war effort. Um, you know, that's he ends up being in, you know, an army commander under Grant, but like he stayed in this role fundamentally uh, as the guy in charge of this army. Um, but yeah, he's he's just kind of a cipher uh, here because all he's done is, is he's handed the victory on a silver platter yeah. uh, by Buford and Hancock uh, and you know Reynolds. Uh, posthumously 
by finding him the best ground around. And all he has to do is not lose it uh, to, you know, to, to Lee uh, who, who's going to overcalculate here. Yeah. It makes it, it, it makes it a slightly, um, you know, I think by and large, a lot of choices they make here are decent, but yeah, it's a very narrow frame uh, on the battle. That being said, like, you know, even the stuff they unpack here in the director's cut, the movie becomes four and a half, you know, coming on five hours long. Um, if there were much more here, the the thing you'd have to cut is like probably you need one campfire scene uh, around Longstreet HQ, and maybe not twenty minutes of Confederate reenactors walking past their own cannons as Pickett's charge begins. Yeah, um, with the music swelling. Yeah, we do not need forty minutes of of Pickett's charge. I, I mean, da, I, da, da, da. oh my god! Da, da, da. God. And now again, louder. Da-na-na-na. Yeah, that's that's the movie. But it, it, it does remain one of my favorite uh, battle films of all time. Uh, oh, I yeah. think I think even though we don't get a good sense of the battlefield itself, the actions we do see, we get a pretty good pretty good sense of. It is anchored by some really good performances. And now you have to show me how to play Sid Meier's Gettysburg on Windows Eleven. Uh, I can, yeah, I can absolutely, I can actually, absolutely show you. I've because got, like uh, you, I've also been dipping more at the Civil War stuff. Like I, I, yeah. I booted up a Scourge of War Gettysburg, uh, the other day, and boy so, okay, do I, boy do I not this. know how to play that anymore. Not only that though, so I, I went back then not long ago, and I don't know if something had changed in the past or something, but like, I feel like the. Games that Norb Timko made, the designer split from the collaborator who had for the Tick Command series. I feel like those games can't play themselves for shit. Like, they're not bad, but I feel like the sheer number of times that like I can just roll up scenarios because like the AI can't get a battle line established, can't yeah. like throw brigades into the right place, can't attack in mass. Like all these issues crop up, and I and also there's just not enough scenarios. Of different scales yeah. uh, in them. Whereas like Take Command Second Manassas, like I wish that game were available like online. I've still got my discs, but yes. um I feel like whatever sauce that uh like that collaboration, however flawed it was, um like had going for it, wasn't quite replaced in in Scourge of War. Yeah. Um and the and the more Scourge of War games they made, the the more clear it was that like the scenario design and scale of second Manassas was really well considered and the later incarnations just didn't, didn't quite arrive at that same sweet spot. Um, Ultimate general Gettysburg is still very good. It is. It is. Uh, the, the troops behave like they're on ice skates. Um, but it's 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 a lot of fun. And I, I really like the way that it, the whole battle plays out. I think a cool thing there is because almost the entire battlefield is open to you at any given time. You end up commanding the entire army brigade by brigade. It is frantic. Yeah. But you do get a real sense of like. You know. This fight for this this ridge on this end of the battlefield dictates what's going to happen in the middle of the battlefield right and that's that's tough to bring across but i think ultimate general does um where like you know if one wing your army takes a key you know takes some key high ground and you put batteries up there those batteries can make a appreciable difference to action like halfway across the map 
uh, because that's the scale we're fighting at here. Um, and that's pretty cool. Uh, the last thing I'd, I'd call out here just as a, one of the things that makes it a great battle movie, the portrayal of like command decisions and deliberations in the fog of war is just really well done. I think that scene where Lee is trying to figure out what the hell Harry Heath has gotten them into. Yeah. You know, he's right into the front trying to unpack, like, why am I hearing a full, full fledged battle? Like what is going on? And Heath's sort of uh bedraggled, like, you know, half-ass excuse making. Uh, but then when he realizes he, you know, he wants to call off the attack and he is informed we have an entire, we have Yule's core coming in behind where the union positions are. And his guys are urging him, let's just do it. Let's just go. And he flips, you know, he, he starts that conversation. He starts the morning in Longstreet's camp of, we just need to find ground of our choosing and fight like a sensible defensive battle. And he sees this opportunity and he is convinced to it. And he seizes it. He, he seizes it. Yeah. And he makes the decision. He tells, you know, all commanders attack uh and cast the die but then having done that he can't he cannot decide to rein that decision in the next day you know you, you see him his brilliant capacity for reacting correctly on the battlefield gives way to his worst tendencies to begin misassigning value the next like perceive like he can capitalize on opportunities when they are presented but left to his own devices over the coming two days, he convinces himself that opportunities exist that do not. Um, but I think it's so well done that, that, that portrayal of how it often is for commanders. You can't in this period, you know, it's us. These things are all readable. You, you interact with them through maps, you know, you can see who was, who was where at a given time, you know, this movie does a great job of showing for Lee, it literally is you hear guns down the road and you don't know what's happening and you have to ride around until somebody can tell you. Such a different world. Yep. Uh, I think that that does it for Gettysburg. Like, I think, for yeah, for all its flaws, for the reenactor corniness, um, you know, the fact that it doesn't see, seem to be a single soldier under the age of 35 in this war. Uh, like, I still... I was still taken aback by how much I liked this movie, uh, by, by how many of these moments really landed for me. Um, I mean, yeah, I think as you said, it's a great, it's a great battle movie. Uh, I think it is. We should, we, I we, think we really I, should do Waterloo one of these days. I think we, you know, I've never seen it. You've never seen Waterloo. I mean, interesting to get your it. take on Waterloo. Oh man. I, the things I've seen look so, first of all, like I, so many things I've seen just look so, uh, What's the way to put it? It seems like a very awkward movie in places. Yes, I can't. That's the only way I can put it. Yes, it's it's nineteen seventies, but, but not in the but not in the way you can be like seventies cinema is awesome. No. More in the like, yep, this is a seventies ass movie. Yep, it's got that. It has have some stagey awkwardness uh, to it, but I think uh, it's I think the I think once again it's it's lifted by a couple of its performances. But that's for another time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. So I think we will we will leave Gettysburg off there. I do wish that we had if we had more Civil War battle movies like I like again, there is such a writ Troy. There is an office drama or maybe an office comedy 
about Union High Command uh, during this war that nobody has made, but I swear to God, it'd be amazing. Um, oh, yeah, I would you, love Because it is tragic comic. I mean, even like after this battle, Lincoln's upset that Meade isn't using his exhausted army to chase Lee. Like, he's just is so fed up. And, you know, people will be using that uh, against Meade for the rest of his career. So it's yep. just nonstop scheming. Yeah, it is. It is an incredible period. And uh, the overweening focus on just the greatness of the Army of Northern Virginia, I think, really does uh, a disservice to how fascinating the story is of how the Union slowly, by fits and starts, pulled itself together enough to use its resources and advantages to actually break down the Confederacy. Because uh, it is, it's a great story, and you just don't get there uh, if you only examine it through the lens of, uh, you know, battlefield heroics uh, or or the 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 omnicompetence of the lost cause myth. Uh, so we'll we'll hopefully at some point uh, someone makes that movie uh, for us and, and and delivers it to us. Uh, but with that, the lights are coming up, and it is time for us to head out. This episode was produced by Len Hafer and was supported, supported, of course, by our Patreon backers. As always, we are grateful to your, for your support uh, and hope you continue to enjoy the show. We were flirting around maybe making this one, putting this one in the public feed. So if you're hearing on the public feed uh, and would like to do more, well, Three Moves Ahead is a great, and now at this point, an astonishingly long-running strategy game podcast. Uh, you can support it on uh, patreon.com slash 3MA. Uh, it used to be like me and Troy, you know, predominantly pinning it down. Uh, now it's increasingly Len Hafer and Rowan Kaiser, but Troy and I are still on a lot and we do this. Uh, but we figured given that I have already pulled sucker punched the entire Waypoint community into a Civil War month, uh, fuck it. Uh you know, might as well get all this out of my system. I'm lying. It will never be out of my system, but we can, we can pretend, uh, might as well get all this out of my system and do a movie pod, uh, on, on Gettysburg. And Hey, uh, in our, in the three was ahead feed recently, we also did, uh, we covered Lincoln and, uh, I think is closer to maybe being that, that period office drama, uh, that, that we were talking about. So, so there's that as well. Uh, but we are, we are grateful uh, for your support and your patience uh, and, and hope you enjoy. For Troy Goodfell, this is Rob Zachney saying good night.